This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Turn up the radio and sing along. It's time for another great song. This is the Great Song Podcast. Season's greetings and welcome once again to the Great Song Podcast. I'm Rob Alley. I am J.P. Mosher. <laughs> and we're here to, hold on, I got finger guns with each of those. <laughs> it was like, it was so, I don't know exactly how to describe that, but it was, it was wonderful. We're here to celebrate the greatest songs in modern music history. We're going to tell you what makes them great, why we think they're awesome, and why you should too. J.P., how you doing today, man? Man, I am doing fantastic. Happy 4th of July week, folks. America. Uh, nothing says America. Like, wait, I'm going to throw a curveball here. Okay, like okay. Jake Arietta, famous Cub, wow. or even Rick Sutcliffe. Why am I going Cubs? Because we're talking with a Cubs fan. Absolutely. So the Cubs cu- fanatic. The curveball I'm going to throw, while y'all are eating hamburgers and hot dogs this week, I've got a craving for fish because we are with Jim, a.k.a. Sony, of Hootie <laughs> and the Blow Fish. Yeah. Today, as we focus on the touring musician yeah. as part of our behind-the-scenes series that we're covering here in week three. Uh, between seasons yeah um go and ahead this, Rob, take this is a guy sony has been around the world and back many times uh and he details many of his travels and experiences in his fantastic new book swimming with the blowfish um you're gonna want to check it out it just came out it's out right now wherever you can get your favorite books if you like to do the digital thing if you like to do the print thing just go get it by jim sonefeld i promise i actually read this book <laughs> which never happened um but i finished this book and uh, I'm telling you, it's really good. It's really engaging. He writes in a in a in a uh, in an interesting, funny style, and tells some amazing stories. I mean, just imagine uh, the spot that Hootie and the Blowfish was in in the like mid to late '90s, just at absolutely everything. You know what I mean? Like one of the pivotal moments in the book happens at Tiger Woods' wedding. <laughs> It, it's that kind of stories that you're going to get. Yeah. You know what I mean? And he's a great visual writer where like, yeah. he gives things that you can like you can see it um, with yes. his words. Exactly. If that makes sense. There's a, there's a scene in the book. Uh, there's a story in the book that involves a bathroom and a famous celebrity. <laughs> and I, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but it's probably my f- – I laughed just so hard out loud uh, <laughs> at, at that point in the book. But it, you can visualize the whole thing. You yeah, know what it's I mean? It's good. great. And uh, Sony has a, a, a life of ups and downs as it regards the music uh, industry, as it regards relationships. And there's some really interesting stuff um, that I that I think is kind of a unique perspective of his. I mean, he's some of the stuff that he's been through uh, with his, his life and with his bandmates, you're not going to get this in any other book. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. So I don't want to, I don't want to tell you the whole story. I want you to go read it. So go pick up uh, Swimming with the Blowfish, Jim's new memoir. Um, and uh, he's he, got some new music. Yeah. He's also um, got a new project out that kind of, it coincides wonderful timing with that. So yeah. And we're going to play you a little bit of that new project uh, in just a second. But first, let's do this song that you may have possibly heard before um, that he wrote that kicked off the uh, you know electric career of Hootie and the Blowfish. This is a little ditty called Hold My Hand. Holy crap. That B add nine chord. I'm going to talk about it in the book. That's right. With a little love 
Man, that guitar is panned so hard. I mean, you may have heard uh, that little ditty that Jim wrote a few years ago, possibly. You remember when, for that, the first time that we had him on, we redid the make the, the, yeah, meet the band. Yeah, the band. And it flopped so hard. Like, I worked hard on it, dude. We I thought tr- we were great. I was like, Rob, I got these lyrics yeah, that are the greatest. I was like, I, this is this concept. I thought people were going to love it. And they just went, bring the other one back. Uh, when, when, why did you just leave the jingle out? It was like, come on, that is creativity. We've, right. o- we've only got to use it that one time. Yeah, I've never even, I felt so bad that I've never even used it again. I know, like, and I felt, maybe we should throw it in here. Absolutely. Drop it here. Let's just gonna, meet the band one more we're, time. We're going to pretend like we're meeting the band. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I remember the excitement I had when I had the idea of telling Rob, Rob, I got this idea for this meet for a new Meet the Band jingle just for this week. And I remember as we're writing words on the board, like, oh, this yeah. is the greatest thing we've ever done. And we didn't use a karaoke track. No. I recorded that That's track. Right. Rob, like we, Rob played all the instruments. We, it was work, y'all. It was work. <laughs> and y'all just went, meh. Yes. Like, meh, pass. <laughs> like, now I know Now I know how, like, pro songwriters feel. Right. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. I, I feel that, where you just go, dude, my heart and soul and sweat is in this. Uh-huh. And, like, you pitch it to an artist, and they just go, nah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Come on, bro. All right. Anyway, uh, uh, Sony's also got some... Uh, by the way, you're not going to find it by searching for Sony, okay? So you're going to find it by searching for Jim Sonefeld. Spell Sonefeld for him, too. S-O-N-E-F-E-L-D, okay? Um, and But everybody calls him Sony. Uh, but here's some of his uh, latest stuff of his latest crop. This one might be my favorite. This is good to get back. Chord. I like that chord. I yeah. say. I tried to think of what I'd say to you after all this time. When I first ran off, I was 17. I thought the world would soon be mine. I was chasing highs, but finding lows. Sometimes trying not to feel. But there ain't no pill that I know to help a wounded heart to heal. When I saw you tonight, it felt just like we were old friends. With all the time gone by, I was scared I might have slipped away. Back, good to get back to those days 
Oh, yeah. So we're going to talk to Sony for a few minutes, search for his new uh, music, Jim Sonnefeld. He's on Spotify playlists and all that stuff. You can find him there, or you can just search for his artist page um, on all the different places that you listen to your music. Go get his new book. It is called Swimming with the Blowfish. And we just got to say, he has been so cool to us. Oh, like, man. He, Great he's been friend. an amazing um, like who knew that we were going to de- you know develop this relationship with him but he just you know do you remember when he posted randomly at the end of the year a couple years ago him about, wearing that shirt he's wearing his sh- playing his, his drums uh, it, right he's wearing a great song podcast shirt sitting behind his hoodie kit and just posted about how much he loved our show for for nothing it, yeah. he had already been on it like we'd already done the episode and it was at a random time it yeah, wasn't it was, even tied in with his episode and we just so went kind. who what in the world you yeah. know what i mean that is the coolest feeling that's great uh, and it's been awesome to get to know him a little bit um so anyway we're gonna go have some fun with sony we'll be back at the end to tuck you in Ladies and gentlemen, as promised, we have only our second ever return guest, Sony Jim Sonnefeld from Hootie and the Blowfish. Um, and your local Celebrate Recovery meeting um, is joining us today <laughs> on the Great Song Podcast again to talk about tour life, to talk about his brand new book, Swimming with the Blowfish. Um, and uh, we're gonna we're just gonna dig into it. It's Let's gonna get it. real here today, y'all. So, Jim, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you for allowing me to live in the real with you guys. You got it. I like the real. I'm just going to say this. First of all, it's a real accomplishment, and you should wear this as a as a badge of honor that you got me to finish a book. The last time, <laughs> the last time I finished a book, I couldn't even tell you when it was. Curious George and the Pizza. <laughs> <laughs> so by H. Uh, a. Ray. That is an accomplishment, if nothing else, uh, that you can say <laughs> I made that happen. Um, but real talk, the book I, it was really. Engaging read. Um, uh, well, no, I'm going to say I didn't actually read it. I had my phone read it to me because nice. I just reading is just Because he's way not my smarter than me to do that. <laughs> it's working smarter. Nice job, Mr. Alley. But I, it was it was really engaging. I thought it was great. And I, and I think there's some very real stuff in there that's going to help that's going to help some people. I mean, it, it even it, reading through it, uh, um, I, you know, was confronted with some things about my own life that I went, okay, you know, I need to take stock of some certain, some certain tendencies and some certain things about, about my own self with some things. So I'm, you know, uh, so I'll be the first guy that says your book has already helped. So. <laughs> well, I, I, have, I, I wrote it cause I felt I wanted to remember and sort of uh, share some of my more meaningful moments in life, which obviously goes right through the heart of my band called Hootie and the Blowfish. There's a ton of that. So for the Hootie fan, they're going to dig a scene from behind the scenes, but you know, with my regular life that also intersected with Hootie, I, there's just a lot to divulge that I think can help others. It's the connection I wanted to make to say, hey, here's uh, here were my victories, here were my sufferings, and here's what it's and family and the road life. I, I think people will find value in that because we're all looking for some sort of lesson or, or comparable to say, how did this guy do it? Because, you know, I 
my pro- main problem was I thought I knew everything. Mm. So when I came to realize I don't, I started seeking out others who I could connect with to share their experience. That's where I've gained my knowledge. That's where I think God is really is through other people. The uh, I kind of I kind of wrote my bullet points down in chronological order for me. So if you hear me sound like I'm coming from the book in parts, it's because <laughs> that's the best way I know to think is just yeah. to write it down as I hear it. So I was jotting stuff down. I mean, the first story in the prologue from out the gates from the from your daughter jumping on you and you realize you aren't in control in the back house. You see yourself in the mirror and you don't like what the the pain out the gates is like. It sets the theme that this is not what you expect from the smiling drummer. You know, from the happiest smile that you see on Hootie stuff all the time. Like, you're the smiliest guy. We talk about that all the time and even now, but um, I love the vulnerability even out the gates that you that you bring. Well, it, it, and it's showing those contrasts that not everybody sees uh, in a concert. You know, you have to go back with the musician who looks happy and famous on stage and see what his life looks like on the in-between days. And, and that's what I tried to show. And that scene, especially in the book, I'm hungover. I'm demoralized. My four-year-old has just basically called me out accidentally on being a deadbeat dad, a hungover dad. And and I'm walking down my stairway uh, and there's all these plaques, gold hootie plaques from around the world. And I'm, and I look in the mirror and I just say, I, I don't care about the plaques. I don't like the guy I'm staring at. And that's a, it was a hard place for me to acknowledge. And I needed the help of others to help show me the truth behind you know, my own eyes. So it's, it's a, it's a weird world out there, man. <laughs> yeah. Let's let talk for a second about the impact of, of what I'm going to call, and you may, you may have better words for it, but I'm going to call either pride or shame or a combination thereof that kept you from being able to admit that something was getting worse, you know, in your like descent into serious substance abuse. Um, you know, obviously the alcohol itself was having its effects on your physical health, but mentally, what was the result of constantly having to lie to yourself about your problem? Uh, it put me as someone who identifies as an alcoholic or, or drug addict that's in recovery, it puts you in a cycle. And, and so the profound <laughs> idiocy of the whole thing is the thing that has caused you the shame or guilt or regret is the thing that your mental mind goes back to, to find relief. Mm. So yes, I've done a done thing or I've, and it's was partially caused by inebriation uh, and getting caught up in, in a bad lifestyle. And my answer to it is after I have a moment of, you know, uh, uh, sort of feeling the pain, my answer to that was I need to drink again. That's what makes me feel better, although momentarily. So it's the cycle that I found myself in that I couldn't break. And I didn't want to break it for a while. It, I felt like it worked for me. <laughs> Don't ask the people around me at the time, but, uh, I felt like that was my only way of dealing with uh, emotional imbalance. And that's what the addict does. They constantly go back to the thing that they haven't acknowledged acknowledged as the thing that's actually killing them. So it's a Mm. dangerous cycle that often does end up in death. And so I was, you know, by the grace of God, a little serendipity of, uh, and a little uh, thankfulness for somebody else who shared their phone number for me (laughs) to say, call me when you're at the bottom. And that's what I did on that day in the book. I, I called the one guy I knew who uh, seemed to have changed his life a little bit. So yeah. that's good. The uh, 
I would the next stuff I'd written down was the stuff from Sister Helen Judith and Barbara warning you of the fiery pits of hell that awaits. But for the sake of building it up, since we've been heavy, I want to talk about your love of sports. Um, we typically, you know, would talk Cubs and Braves baseball and soccer was your passion. How we talked about that for all those things. Go back and listen to the episode that we did with you um, where we discussed uh, more hootie driven stuff. But in this section, you talk about how music gave you the same buzz um, without the competition, which I think is a neat uh, a neat parallel for those of us that either grew up playing sports or such but now you know and the way it transitioned into the music world talk a little bit about that i love that comparison well you're right i mean uh the two things are both expressions and and uh boys or girls men or women express themselves through competition through athletics through sports individual or team and uh we can get better at those things uh by our physic by you know getting better stronger uh physically and and music gave me the same buzz you know where i i felt this electricity in, inside of me hearing a song i felt it even more profoundly playing drums and then becoming a songwriter but there was i never felt the competition so the the divergences uh in sports i'm always competitive and i i trash talk with of course, you guys, anybody who <laughs> likes the other guy, right. be it the Braves or any team, I'm sure we could go on and on. But in sport, in music, rather, I I never felt the competition. And I tell you, it was really startling out there in the, the business, the music business world to first confront, well, there are people who are competitive in music, mm. who are striving for a trophy or striving to be better than you on stage. And I I honestly found that a little disconcerting when, and my bandmates did too. We we loved doing what we did, whether there was two people in a bar or twenty thousand people in an amphitheater, and we saw people who were a little more competitive in spirit with their music, and we we're like, "Wow, this guy takes himself really seriously." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you, you talk in the book a little bit about how how much it like hurt stung to when, you know, people would, we were talking earlier today in another episode about, um, you know, how once something sort of saturates, you know, the, the culture, like people just for whatever reason, flip a switch and go, all right, it's cool now to dump on this. I'm just going to dump on it because it's popular. And you guys definitely dealt with that. You know, once, once, I mean, who was on top of the charts in a huge way, um, and then you start getting disses from guys who you were like, come on journey. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> talk, talk a little bit about that. Like, you know, that feeling. Yeah. Well, again, a little connection to sports is uh, in sports. You can trash talk if you're mm -hmm. terrible or if you performed, uh, uh, less than the opponent, they trash talk and you're, you deserve it. Fair enough. It's a competition, but I could never see. And it hurt when I saw people writing and talking about us as if we were less than musically. And I kept scratching my head. I think I kept saying, I think we just sold like 5 million records. Right. Or, and the more it went up, the more trash was yeah. talked. And it's I lonely thought, at the top, huh? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I honestly, I, raising children and trying to teach them valuable lessons, I had to look back and be honest with myself that, you know what, when I was uh, 12, 16, 25, before I started with Hootie, I had bands I disliked. And it was probably out of either jealousy or uh, fear that I was never going to be as good as them or that they whatever they were doing wasn't real. You know, I hated Madonna. 
because <laughs> she had all the fans and well, she's a girl, she can be cute or, uh, her music isn't real. I had all these excuses. No, I was jealous. I was <laughs> just jealous. And there were other bands that came along too that, Oh, they're so this, they're so that I would downplay them. And it was mainly a little envy and uh, I had to get over that. So I, I had to confess to my kids that I have been an envious, uh, I guess hater would be the word through my youth, and uh, I'm over it now. I, I love everybody. That's that's a mature word. That's yeah. a, to own it up to that. <laughs> that's something that really stuck out to me in the book is the sort of the continued, almost like purposeful camaraderie of the band. You know, even when even when things were tense there's always you guys are like a brotherhood you know it, it, it in music in business you know it just seems like everybody always had to, each other's backs even when guys like started coming to you and being like hey are you good are we good you know what i mean do you need something you know and it's yeah. is that that's kind of the vibe i get am i reading that right you know you nailed it we uh, for a band that uh formed organically learned to write songs uh, with each other organically uh, and then thrived and grew organically. Uh, it's like being in a family, you know, you, you develop around each other. You start at a certain point in your age for us, sort of our early or mid twenties and life changes. You deal with death, you deal with band members, failures right in front of you, some that even hurt you. And so when you go through that together organically, uh, you, you're living a life together as a family member. And so we were lucky enough, I guess, to spend a bunch of years driving around in a stinky Ford Econoline <laughs> with each other when there weren't a lot of fans, when there weren't really anybody else to uh, complain to or say boo-hoo to. We had each other, and often it was just each other and some, you know, cruddy, like, beer that was born and somebody gave us. Because <laughs> they felt the way for it. Probably. Right? The, uh, I'll tell you, the way you express in the visual language that you use all the way throughout from um, the way they dress, when you describe the way Mark Dean and, and Darius dress, to the love of the Redskins, to the Pontiac Phoenix car. Like, I can visualize everything you're saying. Darius in his red flannel shirt playing that brown ovation that crappy brown ovation <laughs> by the way how crappy are ovation guitars i know we're really close to getting a sponsorship so <laughs> sorry ovation i know we were right there but i love the language the way i think you're a wonderful visual writer um i, I it takes me Thank into you. the scenes so i agree made well, the book really easy to stick with yeah i i think i i try and write uh as a common man i consider myself common i've experienced some wonderful things and travel and, and culture to go places and see things. But I'm, I'm a pretty common guy and I, I like to write toward the common person, you know, cause the common person knows what a particular red flannel shirt feels and looks like, <laughs> yeah. or what, you know, what it is when you can't afford a certain thing. So you wear another certain thing. I'm not Mark Bryan. I have no excuse for it. He could afford actual clothing that wasn't ripped and torn, <laughs> but he loved that style. Yeah. He loved a self-made tank top, not one that comes with you know a little sewn seams and stuff for <laughs> armholes. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, okay, I got to talk. Uh, listen, I this was pretty early in the book, um, but it, it's one of the biggest pops that I got for me through the whole book because I've never heard anybody else talk about this, and I didn't know that other people did this. So I've got to talk to you for a second about dental drumming because <laughs> I thought maybe I was the only one. What that like? I mean. I'm such a better drummer in my mouth 
than I am. So what I'm talking, let me explain for listeners. There's a session where Sony's talking about like, essentially you were, you know, in, instead of trying to have something to tap or bang or whatever all the time, when you would get on people's nerves, you would just start clanging your teeth together and moving your teeth around and making a little drum kit in your mouth, right? And Absolutely. And it's like the quiet way you could just sort of practice and whatever. I'm so much better in inside my teeth than I am as a real drummer. I'm so creative that way. Yeah, it is a real thing when you've, as you said, annoyed everyone else in the room and you've got to have... Uh, some way to express this thing that is just won't shut up in your head with a rhythm or a drum part. You're maybe repeating something you heard or creating, but uh, yeah, I've never heard anyone. And I wondered when I was writing the book, how can I explain this without sounding like I might need some mental help? (laughs) Because they may not, they may go, what? Dental drumming? Uh, My cuspids? And whatever, but it it works. It still works for me. As I mentioned, I, I still do it. I, you know, these hands that I hold cannot imitate the drumming of Rush, but my teeth, I am nailing it. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. You, you have a, a Neil, Neil Peart uh, third molar. By <laughs> I have four kick number drums four in here. They're called bicuspid. That's awesome. That's you can get some amazing snare sounds in your teeth. That's your number dude. four molar. That's awesome. That's, that's funny. And there's nobody to interrupt. There's no guitars that are turned up too loud. There's no feedback. It's just you and your great sounding Eye teeth. Yes, yeah, exactly. Got your built-in click and metronome in your in your head. Yeah. The, uh, so while we're on the drummer topic, I'm going backwards. I said I was going to go chronological, but you talked about seeing Buddy Rich on the Tonight Show. So let's just talk a little bit about uh, about Buddy Rich. I had a few early heroes, and in the early '70s, uh, there wasn't a lot of chance to just click a few buttons and see videos of drummers, or uh, there wasn't a ton of books that were accessible to me. Uh, somehow my Catholic school didn't have like the 10 greatest rock drummers of all time book <laughs> on the shelf. Uh, so we, anything that ever came up was a big deal. And one was my parents waking me up after uh, I'd already gone to bed and the tonight show was on with uh, Johnny Carson. And of course this drummer that we knew about as a famous drummer, sort of from my dad's era called buddy rich. And I knew that when he was on the tonight show, they had a double kick drum and there was already a uh, drummer there called Ed uh, O'Shaughnessy, Ed Shaughnessy, I think it was his name. And so my dad woke me up and said, hey, he's about to do his, his drum thing. Come on down. I was like, what? Half asleep, you know? <laughs> but I was wide awake as soon as that first uh, intro roll hit. And I, I watched it like, oh, my dreams just blossomed at that moment. I had his poster in my room, of course. I think he was sponsored by one of the uh, symbol companies that I had access to a poster from the record store. And I just dreamed, I dreamed and dreamed and little moments like that on a television show at 11 o'clock at night, just fed. And, uh, the few moments I had were enough to keep me plowing through. And, uh, then I found a band when I was 21. <laughs> <laughs> it worked out. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. As someone who still has in the back of my in the back of my mind, who still has music industry dreams, it was so fun to read about the dream tour with Toad the Wet Sprocket and the guy the way that you guys really soaked up and appreciated that experience. You know, even after it kind of in the in the height of things that you guys would just go out and be like, guys, we're on tour with Toad the Wet Sprocket. Like, you know what I mean? This is like the the dream collab for us to just go watch them at night. I just loved, you know, that experience. Uh, just Touring in general and getting to see so many of your, you know, 
favorite players and, and make these relationships. Um, you know, just talk about how that kind of just enriches your life, even as a musician. Yeah, it, it's the bonding that uh, you can get with other musicians, seeing how they do it, learning the trade, sharing the trade. And perhaps we set our uh, bar a little low. Maybe that was how modest we were in the uh, in the early 90s when we were beginning or late 80s, because we thought our dream tour was to go open up for someone. We weren't even headlining in our dream tour. Like, so that's setting it <laughs> that's that's awesome. a little low. Dream well, a little bigger, right? <laughs> <laughs> so to go out with what was one of our two probably at top of the list active bands that we would uh, ever want to go out with, which would have been REM and Toad, uh, to have Toad uh, to go out to see them every night. And this was the spring of 95. Our album was chugging up the charts, but we were so immersed in, I think I mentioned it as a band crush uh, in the book <laughs> uh, with Toad the Wet Sprocket that we were we kind of blinded ourselves to what the, was happening out there with a, a single going up the charts, a video making noise, and uh, albums continuing to sell uh, better each week. We, oh, what album we thought? Oh, what? Yeah, uh, the album's doing fine. We're here with Toad the Wet Sprocket. What do we need to worry about? Albums. <laughs> this sales? is the peak right here. <laughs> yes, we are the dream tour, and there's, this is the top. We might even retire. Uh, so that'll teach your kids make sure to set low expectations that's what we came to teach you just set them low and so you can fly past them that's that's what we came to teach you guys it all happened because the night we played in front of two people in greensboro north carolina set the bar very low it didn't get any lower than that yeah so we thought down here driving three hours to north carolina to play for two people man so we're like god next time we might get eight man this is gonna be killer (laughs) so seeing yeah the bond out there as things really took off and we realized we were becoming peers with some bands that we truly idolized, it was a hard role to settle into. And it, it, it took years. We were, we were extremely not shy, but considered that, Hey, fill in the blank star, Eddie Van Halen or, uh, uh Steven Tyler or Bono, as we meet them, we're, we're thinking five minutes ago, we were just driving around in a van. <laughs> Right, <laughs> and so the the jump from all the years of working hard into sitting there with another big star were kind of quick in reality, even though we'd paid our dues. So we always were, you know, pitching ourselves like, "Why are we playing Frank Sinatra's 80th birthday party again? Why is it like <laughs> how how did we get here?" Yeah. <laughs> Man, one of my there's so many great like. Um, celebrity brushes and encounters in the book. Oh man, yeah, I, I laughed out loud, and I'm not. I'm not going to make you spoil it. I'm going to tell people to go get the book and read it. But my the I laughed out loud in my car while I was listening uh, to your encounter with Bob Dylan. Um, <laughs> that I mean, I howled in my car. Um, so y'all, so I'm that's not a teaser. We'll I, yeah, I'm not going to spoil it. Just go listen and just yeah, and just. That's my my thing is I'm having to you is like restraint because I have like stuff that I want to touch on. Yeah, we don't but I don't want to read the book basically <laughs> here with you. Yeah. So um. So yeah, I will. That's a great one. Though. I, I am gonna I'm gonna ask you this though. How did you uh arrive at your hotel pseudonyms George Thunderbucket and Alan Wrench? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Lack of brain cells, uh, a youthful, creative spirit. Perhaps we, had, you know, we had heard people using these names before, so we were aware that we were having to use them. Uh, and we always, 
you know, there's a million ways. There's other names that people will conjure uh, as jokes yeah. uh, for anything from porno names to uh, various things, my author title. Uh, but for us, we would often just conjure things that were puns uh, or deep cuts, like yeah. Darius is, was the, I think he was the wrestler. What did I say? The wrestler oh, yeah. who was. Uh, Runnels. Uh, uh, it's Dusty Rhodes. Dusty, Virgil, yeah. Virgil Runnels. Virgil, Virgil yeah, Runnels. Yeah. So it's only, the, the funny thing is, it's only funny to six people. Right. <laughs> yeah. Just trying Just to keep people in the out of hotel rooms. I mean, that's really all your, yeah. I think Alan Wrench was my low point. It was a little too simple. I liked <laughs> Senator George T. Bucket uh, <laughs> for its silliness. We had the, we were, I think I mentioned we were brothers too, because me and Mark traditionally lived together and roomed together. So did Dean and Darius. So we decided we'd use our names with our street names and be brothers. So Mark and I were, I think the Bernie brothers, we both lived on Bernie drive for a while. So he was William, his middle name. And I was George, George and William Bernie. So he sounded like, I don't know what aristocrats. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and the best one was Dean and Darius. Cause Dean's real name is Everett and Darius's middle name is Carlos. And they lived on Edisto and that had a flair to it. Carlos and Everett Edisto. That like, does, what is, is yeah. that? Sounds important. That's money. So, so many things, not that I could rip, but I don't want to give away everything. Right. Man, I didn't know that you wrote the arpeggio part on time. Holy cow. I didn't know that. That was awesome. Um, and, you know, beginner's luck is a wonderful <laughs> and very real gift when you only know six or seven chords and you're just learning how to ar- arpeggiate, if that's a word. Uh, you, you stick with D because you can do the pinky down to the right. the G yeah. note, and you can uh, lift it and sort of suspend it for a moment. It's uh, there's some wonderful gifts that when you only know that few chords, <laughs> you end up stumbling upon sort of a naive, a pure thing that I think sometimes can feel innocent to the listener. I think it's the some of the simple moves in music are, are the most memorable. You know, there's some drum parts, even piano and guitar parts through the years and songs that they're they're pure, they're innocent because they're not overthought. Mm. They're not uh, there's no diminishing things. There's no there's no complex what we call uh, expensive chords, (laughs) you know, so the minor sevens, those were not a thing. And. 1990 when i was writing time for sure <laughs> well, yeah, i mean and, and hold my hand you know which everybody we talk i love that you talk about that it's in b yeah but i didn't know that you played it in b when you wrote it like without capoing it you're talking about the f sharp chord in mm. there i was like nobody plays it that way like there's somebody <laughs> well else. nobody nobody who's a good songwriter starts a song in when they can't, can't even do bar chords they started it <laughs> In, in E. Okay, I'm going to be really limited here. I can do E, A, and oh, that's about it. Which <laughs> could get you, I could get you a good rock song, but <laughs> oh, man. if you're Bo Diddley. Right. Um, I, I found a few, I just wrote down a couple quotes from the book that things that really, really, really leapt off the, the page to me when I got there. One was a, a phrase used, and I think it was the momentary empowerment of self-pity. That is like, I mean, that's a whole, you could expand that single phrase into a book of its very That could have been the title of a book. Like that realization alone could set a lot of people free that, that self-pity is something that we really lean on and give ourselves an excuse to, to fuel, you know, the negative things in our lives. If, if there wasn't something in self-pity that didn't feel 
like a warm, cozy blanket, we wouldn't do it. We wouldn't rely on it. And I'm going to throw this out there too, that no word for the name of the super group for us three and Barnes, that would be a good name for our super group. It's got to be a, <laughs> yeah. what was again, the momentary. The momentary empowerment of self-pity. Wow. That's at very least an album title. That's yeah. it. That's the, that's the title. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, and the, uh, the other, the other one that was stuck out uh, that that stuck out, and this was this was you were quoting someone else, and I, and I believe it was a uh, a church father or someone like that that said, "Gratitude is the hinge on which a happy life swings." That if you can uh, if you can overcome essentially that that um, gravity toward self pity with gratitude, it can really flip your life around, especially when things kind of go off track. If you can lean into gratitude versus self-pity, you know, that it can make yeah, all the difference. Uh, that was uh, Father Joseph Martin who said that, there and he's right. And, and as well, the sort of uh, opposite of that, if, if you can't have gratitude, if you can't live with an attitude of gratitude, you're surely to be locked in uh, continual misery if you can't see that there are gifts around you. And most of my journey through, you know, being in a band that got really big and then we got really small or being a drunk who had to give up alcohol, his, his party time habit, you know, when most of it is a change of attitude. I mean, there's some things that have to be done, but most of it is changing your perspective from, I can't, I can't get happy or I don't have enough. I don't, I need more. I'm due more. I deserve more. If you can't get from there to the opposite, you're unlikely, even if you change your you know geography or your bandmates you're unlikely to get any happiness mm. yeah that's good that's Dang, like i told you it was gonna get heavy Dang, it's getting heavy today <laughs> next on sleepless in seattle <laughs> <laughs> that's man okay um i don't want to like i have other things but i just kind of want to save some stuff yeah so i think we i mean if you've got some things okay. that you just got to touch on i just want to ask since the last time that we've that we've talked to you i think the last time that we i know we saw you when you guys came and played at Exit Inn in Nashville, which was awesome. That and we was were great. Super glad we got oh, to come man. and so then we got cool. to see you for a few minutes after. But I think it was after that, you guys were gearing up then for Hootie Fest, the big splash in Mexico. Um, and I don't think we talked to you really about that. Tell us about that and you guys plan on there's keeping a, that thing there's going. There's a tour for you. Yeah, that's Let's right. go to, there's a touring musician story for you. Let's go to Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's maybe only one thing that's as good as being in a big nineties rock band and having peers that were the other members of other great nineties rock bands. And that's, you know, dragging them to Mexico in late January to put out a festival. And that's, so that's what Hootie Fest was all about. We got offered a, an attempt to, to go gather our sort of peers and put on a festival at a resort down there. They've been doing it for some years successfully with different artists, but they'd never kind of done a nineties one. And, so we got our name stamped on it, and you know the first thing we do is call the people that we've known since then. We call Blues Traveler and Toad the Wet Sprocket and Sister Hazel and and uh, Bare Naked Ladies, and we say let's let's get together, let's do this thing. And uh, what a great uh, opportunity to to play on a beach in Mexico. Uh, we played three nights, and Bare Naked Ladies uh, headlined the third the the other night, and then to get to do what I do, of course, when Toad goes on stage, I head right out to the front of house <laughs> and watch the entire show, waving my hands. I could admit I teared up a couple times for right. a couple oldies. Fair enough. Uh, and just just digging it and got to. And if this episode perhaps is not out till 
July, we may have just announced uh, Hootie Fest 2023. No, but if not, that's awesome. If not, I beg you to edit this segment. We definitely will. Yeah, you got it. You got it. We we will gladly do awesome do such. And yes, if it happens again, we once our Patreon uh, numbers go up about tenfold, we're just we're just trying to save up. We'll be at that one. (laughs) We'll come. We'll come participate. Yeah. Um, Oh my goodness, man. Okay, I think. I, I'm with JP. Yeah, at this I've point, got I've I, got like six or seven point like things, but I'm 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 going to do one more joke. Okay, and then I'm going to just stop so <laughs> I don't say everything. So right. I was going to say that I was the guy behind the trailer when Mark's guitar fell out that <laughs> fell out that picked it up. So tell him thanks. Um, I love that guitar. Play it in church every week. I felt like the Lord placed it in my lap. <laughs> I'm just kidding, it, but uh, it must have been. You know, you were a younger man there. That's I've right. seen your basketball clips. You were quick. You had some good steps. <laughs> because I tell you, in traffic in Columbia, South Carolina, in 1991 man. or whatever year that was, you had to be quick to get out of your car, grab the guitar that it was probably dragging behind our trailer at that point. And get back in your car, and we didn't even see the person. We didn't that's, see them fleeing. So it's, it's kudos, you're, you're light, fast, light, lightning fast, right? You think, you think Mark would sign it for him? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I was going to say the next time we get an autograph. But that's funny. We or had, just be like, "Hey, had, you want to play my guitar? Does that feel familiar?" <laughs> it's in its original case, you know. <laughs> yeah. Bought at Pecknell Music in Columbia, South Carolina, yeah. or yeah. somewhere like be that. Like, sorry uh, if it scuffed yeah. up a little bit. Road scars. That's right. Yeah. That's funny. People well, like. Uh, people like our gear, so uh, you know. Sometimes <laughs> it's good. tempting. So, yeah, it grows legs. That's good. Well, Sony, I, so much. I'll just say the the book is great, and I, I don't just say that. I, I really thoroughly enjoyed the book. Um, and folks listening, you guys are going to. We've got so much stuff. I mean, there's the, a great account of you guys playing uh, at the White House. Yeah, uh, I won't say anything else that's about good. that. Yeah, but and the, the there's a couple of big culminations at the book. Um, one of them. I'll just spoil is a not super spoil is a f- famous athlete's wedding that is a I mean it's like the pivotal moment in the book really for you you know what I mean it's like it's kind of where everything takes a turn um and uh you're not going to want to miss that there and just there's like a single paragraph where if you blink and miss it these names that just get sort of casually tossed <laughs> out of the book just on a celebrity watching level you just go hold up who who was there you know what I mean <laughs> Um, you may slip on a few. I, I do drop a few. Yeah. I try not to make the whole book about that, but I, I'm guilty of dropping a few there That's casually. F- have a blast with it, I say. If you're going to write the book, you might Dude, as well drop the right names. Well. I'll you know? tell you, the name drops that I'll do are the ones that wrote all the nice compliments that I was texting you about. Like, I thought the Dan Patrick compliment on the book was like, mm. what in the world? That's so nice. I really liked Lexi Lawless's. I thought that was yeah. kind, too. So I thought that was I, I loved loved all those things too that all the people I peeked were, out I peeked out I got I got four people to say something nice about my book that was the top again the bar was low I thought maybe if I got two when when you write the sequel great. it's going to be like Rob and JP say right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be the top of what's left that's right that's all right good. man thanks so much for joining us again to, to talk to talk about the book we'd love to have you on again sometime to talk about some some song we'll yeah, find some we'll great find something, something that we, else that we you know. Link but, up with or anything that we can ever do you have been so kind to us Seriously, i mean just let us know. uh and and you know such a friend of the show we can't say thank you enough but anything we can ever do to be a part of what you're doing we're more than happy to do it uh, i appreciate it. i continue to enjoy listening to the uh great song podcast it has been a laughter teaching and a, an example of you know what happens when people 
don't take their medication. It's, <laughs> it's everything for me. It's, it's, good. it's awesome. Yeah. Dude, I tell you, there's no compliment in the world like when you're having a day at work and you look down on your phone and Sony sends you something that he likes about an episode. Yeah. It's like, what in the world just happened? Yeah. So that's so cool for us. So thanks, man. I, it's my pleasure. I'll continue to drop Mark Narpfler's name too. That's one of my favorite moments. That made the, uh, looking back at the Great Moments uh, podcast you guys did, and I, I just read. Here's an aside. If we're out of time, I'm not going to this. But uh, uh, John Ilsley, who is the bass player for Dire Straits, uh, he just put out his book on the same company that's releasing Swimming with the Blowfish. It's yeah. Diversion Books, and it's a kind of a good read too about. Mark Narfler, of course, a little bit of, sure. of him in there, but uh, about how they started. I was unaware of their worldwide reach, like insane. And you guys are a little younger, so it was probably hitting while you were kids, but mm-hmm. I didn't know they were as big as they were. I thought they were just a band with a couple cool albums that I listened to in college. <laughs> who knew? Yeah, who knew? Well, you guys go pick up the yeah, book. Uh, go sure. pick up the audio book. When, when's the audio book going to release? The audio book, as soon as they can get that pitch correction done, of course. I was not, nothing better than being in a, a vocal booth for days and days and days and days. And not once did they say, we have to pitch correct that. Yeah. <laughs> so it was just, it was all flat. Uh, Tony, this has been great. We'll catch up soon. Holler anytime. Thank you, guys. This is the Great Song Podcast. And that was Sony, Jim Sonnefeld of Hootie and the Blowfish, the touring musician, the writer, the author, the music performer, the singer, the drummer, the piano player. The Cubs fan. The other, than Cubs. That, other than that, everything he has going for him right. is right. <laughs> Just need right. some more Vols and Braves love and he'd be okay. That's right. Absolutely. Uh, the soccer player. Mm. like uh, That's right. That's uh, Yeah. If we ever do a sports thing, we'll have him on to talk about soccer. There you go. That's right. Uh, we So we got to see Hootie uh, a few months ago. They did did a, like a basically a surprise pop-up gig at Exit Inn in Nashville, and we, we got to go, and he wore his uh, his Ted Lasso uh, Roy, Roy Kent. Kent jersey. And everybody was chanting Roy Kent. Yes. He's got, here. He's there. He's <laughs> everywhere. Right. So huge, huge soccer fan. Um, so yeah, maybe we should have him on to talk some soccer if we ever do something like that. Wherever you are, however you're listening to the show, thank you so much. We hope you're enjoying these between-season episodes that are interview-focused, kind of a behind-the-scenes tour of the music industry, uh, getting a lot of different perspectives on people who make this thing that we love so much happen and different aspects of it. And we'll be back next week with another perspective on that. But first, I need you to stop what you're doing right now. If you're slicing a watermelon, stop it. It'll still be there, and it'll be delicious, okay? And you're about to cut your finger. Careful, careful. We saved you from that, okay? Um, Stop what you're doing, and go to Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Great Song Pod. Give us a follow there. Join the Facebook group. It's called Great Songs and the Great People Who Love Them Greatly, and we have a lot of fun conversations in there. We tend to make a lot of announcements there early, so uh, if you want to know what's going on with the show, that is a great way to keep up. And if you want to be a producer of the show, yes, we'll give you credit in every episode, uh, and we'll give you bonus stuff like early episodes, extended shows, Patreon-exclusive shows, if you go to support the show at patreon.com slash greatsongpod. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash greatsongpod. 
pod. Um, and we'll do everything that we possibly can to say thank you. But however you are listening to the show, we thank you right now here, right inside your earballs. Um, we are just so appreciative of every listen and we'll be back with season 10 in just a few weeks, but we're going to continue our tour of the music industry next week with another cool interview and another cool person right here on the great song podcast. Until then I'm Rob. I am JP. Go listen to some music.